You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, this show where Emily and I read the Bible and talk about it and record it because people seem to want to listen. <laughs> For some crazy reason. <laughs> so. so, yeah, <laughs> in the conversations we have between, just so you guys know, Nathan wants you to know he has not been in a tanning bed <laughs> with goggles. <laughs> I... I weed eat about 60 acres worth of land and fences and buildings in the summer. So I just, I get a little pink. Yeah. Well, or, thank you, Irish blood. Or, or <laughs> That's what nearly happens. purple as the video looks like anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, they're expecting professional, you know, lighting and setup. I mean, they, thank God. They, <laughs> yeah. They definitely don't come here for the video production. I'm certain of that. <laughs> Right, just our dulcet voices. Um. <laughs> well, that being anyway. said, do we have anything of substance we're going to talk about this week? Actually, we do. We're going to pick up. We're still in Second Samuel 23. These are David's last words. We kind of went over, well, we did go over, not kind of. We went over the, the basic psalm. We talked about some of the things that were brought out. And now we're kind of looking at uh, some deeper stuff within it. Uh, if you didn't listen to it, I really suggest you go back and listen to it because we talked about how this fit into this very old oracle of uh, with numbers and Balaam and how that actually helps us understand more. And I also talked about um, the Dictionary of Demons and uh, Deities and Demons, uh, which, as Nathan pointed out, is not a handbook on how to contact any of these things, but an academic resource that gives you some biblical and historical perspective yeah. on these entities spoken about in the Bible. It's not a D&D &D um, add-on. Exactly. So, uh, and we're going to talk about the significance or what I think is the significance. And I want to stress that because I'm in the minority here of the use of the word Belial, the can't even talk, um, as a proper name, not just an idiom that means worthless. But to get back to that, we're going to um, we're going to take the long way. I mean, we always take the scenic drive. I mean, that that's just the way we are around here. Um, it's so much more enjoyable. So uh, we left off last week. I had read a quote by uh, Brueggemann, and I, I'm going to reread it because um, you may have slept. And so, anyway. Here we go. The, the Davidic house is not a tenuous historical institution, but an ontological structure based in God's decree. This is the, the big thing. God decided that Israel needed a king. Um, the same language is used in the royal psalms, Psalm 89, 28 through 37. The same language of promise, moreover, is used as guaranteed to the world after the flood, Genesis 9, 16. An exilic poetry motif, the motif of Davidic promise, flood promise, and a guarantee of creation, as in Isaiah 54, 9 through 10, 55, 3, all of which are ways of witnessing God's long-term fidelity. So um, I want to look at these passages that Brigham incited because they really do 
play into how we understand what's going on here. Um, Psalms 89 is—I'm um, not going to read the entire thing because that's quite a um, passage he he cited there. But I do want to pick up on two verses, and we're going to—I'm going to read them, and then we're going to come back to them and talk about them more. So, you know, strap in. Uh, Psalm 89, 35 through 37, I will not violate my covenant or alter my words sent forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall establish forever a faithful witness in the skies. So if you've been with us very long, you know, or you know Dr. Heiser's work, you know, Psalms 89 is one of the foundational divine counsel passages. Uh, in verses 5 through 7 of this chapter, the psalmist, which in this case is Ethan the Ezrite, who is one of the wisest men in Israel. And we know that wisdom is a attribute of the prophets. We've talked about that extensively before. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that's the fact that he's wise. He's actually used as a measuring stick for Solomon. That's how great his wisdom is. Uh, that's in First Kings 4.31. And he's one of the Levites who served in the temple and possibly even one of the Levites who helped bring the ark into Jerusalem. And um, he um, describes seeing God not in a temple like David did in Second Samuel 22 or Psalms 18. He describes seeing God in his assembly of his holy ones. Uh, this is also translated as heavenly beings in some passages. Literally, it is sons of God or sons of the mighty. Um, the, the Hebrew there, I believe, and I didn't take time to look this up and confirm, but I'm pretty certain it's uh, uh, B'nai Elim, which Elim can be gods or mighty. So either translation would be correct. They, they both work. Um, but the psalmist tells us that God is feared among his holy ones. And um, so he, he's talking about something that's happening in the heavens. This is not something that's happening in the earth. These holy ones are not the leaders of Israel. They're not the judges of Israel. If you read the passage, there is no doubt that this is something going on outside the world, which follows that same pattern we saw in 2 Samuel 22. And if the, if the term holy ones upsets you or uh, you know, divine counsel, you, you find some kind of reason to be worried about what that could mean. Uh, I want to suggest a synonym that you probably heard in church growing up and you really didn't even think about it this way. How about heavenly host? Mm -hmm. How about host of angels? Right. Uh, You you know, we, this concept has, even though it hasn't been explicitly stated in Christian uh, theology and literature for the last hundred years, it, it, has still remained a part of our subconscious identity. And so I I don't think we should reject it outright. There's a lot of people. Okay. I'm going to chase a little bit of a rabbit trail. Go for it. Uh, There's a lot of people out there who say a lot of really uh, untrue things and inaccurate things about Dr. Heiser's work. Uh, They will misrepresent who he is, what he's taught, because they are so uncomfortable with this idea. And they will say things like, this is a totally new concept. This is a concept foreign to the Bible that he's come up with his own idea and he's trying to impose his own understanding on scripture. 
Okay. I want to go on record. That is completely false. And by the way, I don't know Dr. Heiser. I just know his work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Dr. Heiser has gone to great lengths to document how this has been a part of the Jewish and Christian understanding of the Bible from as far back as we have any memory of. We can look at ancient documents. We can look at uh, ancient uh, Jewish literature. We can see where the Bible spells it out plainly, like in Psalm 89. Mm -hmm. And the only reason why anyone would say that is presenting a new idea is one is because they haven't read their bible closely two they haven't actually looked at his work they're just repeating what they've heard from some other source that has absolutely no basis in reality and it's it's we've got to stop acting that like something that makes us uncomfortable can't possibly be biblical the bible should make you uncomfortable that's not a good reason to just to dismiss anything in it or about it Mm -hmm. you've got to have better reasoning yeah, and, and the whole deal about Dr. Heiser just making stuff up is is completely untrue. I mean, he cites his sources. He's constantly mm-hmm. reminding people that none of the stuff he talks about is his own original thought. Uh, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's very uh, quick to point out that, you know, none of this originates with him. There are, mm-hmm. there are scholar after scholar after scholar that agree with what he's saying. All he's done is taken a lot of work that people have, put together here and there and just collected it. Right. And then explained it a little Uh, bit for the layman. Well, and I think one of the things that happens is if we didn't grow up hearing it from the pulpit that we, you know, listen to as a child, we tend to think that it's heresy. And one guy recently that I read even went so far to say that Heiser worshiped demons. Okay. That's just not good Christian practice. Right. That's not uh, there. So much wrong with that. So I mean, that's part of the reason why I, I decided to go off on this rabbit trail because I, I've got nothing to win or lose in this debate here, other than trying to be true to the rest and you know have a a good, accurate um, understanding of scripture and presenting that mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, I was at first resistant to Heiser's work. And so I can say that what I did was I got the book, actually read it. I didn't just read an article about it. I read the book, literally read it until it fell apart, double-checking all of his sources, all of his footnotes, his translations, his Hebrew, everything I could check, I checked. And then I went to the website that lists all of his sources because they were too many to put in the book. And I checked as many as those of those as I could that were available online. He has not misrepresented any information that he's gotten his hands on. So, anyhow, uh, I don't always agree with his conclusions. There's some applications that I might quibble on, but I can count on him to present the information well and accurately. Yeah. And if we can't have a conversation with a Christian brother or sister on that basis alone, then we're, we're not being faithful. Right. Well, and, and, you know, and here's the great thing about listening to Dr. Heiser is he, you, I've listened to how many episodes of Naked Bible are there? There's over 300 episodes mm-hmm. and not once does he resort to name calling or petty arguments that don't make mm-hmm. any sense. 
he presents the facts. And here's the the cool thing about presenting truth and not misrepresenting the truth, <laughs> not mishandling the truth. When you're doing that, you don't have to resort to petty name calling or false accusations. If you are right. resorting to false accusations and petty name calling, well, you might need to look up um, what how much um, how much value you put on the truth and how much you want people to trust you because. The thing I found about when you misrepresent <laughs> any one thing, once someone figures out you have misrepresented that intentionally, mm-hmm. not, made, not a made a mistake, but intentionally gone out of your way to misrepresent someone or call them names or things like that, you immediately make everything else that you have to say suspect. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you know, we need to be truthful. And again, we say it all the time. If we've made a mistake, let us know. We want to correct it because right. we, this is, this is really important to us that we represent things mm-hmm. fairly and, mm-hmm. and as fully as, not as fully as we can, because we never are going to reach the, the fullness of, <laughs> of representing the truth, but as fairly and accurately as we can within mm-hmm. our scope of mm-hmm. expertise or within our scope of research. But yeah. If, if, if you're resorting to petty name-calling and uh, false accusations and, and you do so and you're corrected on it and you don't respond or you don't repent and you don't apologize, any of that stuff, everything after that is suspect because that, to me, means you put a very low value on being honest in everything. So what else are you willing to lie to me about? That's where I am. Right. And yeah. that... Well, that goes for more than that goes for more than just uh, certain uh, preachers and certain teachers of of Bible things. That goes for everyone. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I've yeah, that's the news. That's you know, <laughs> you name it. If if you're willing to misrepresent facts, you're to to win a, an argument. Then I can't trust you with anything. And yeah. it, and to me, it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, it doesn't matter which facts you're misrepresenting. If you start, if your position starts with intentionally false premises, I'm done. Yeah. So, so that's free. <laughs> if you can't tell, we, we, we have strong opinions on this. Um, so, um, and, you know, just one last little thing and then I'll, I'll move on. Um, when we're talking about other Christian teachers, uh, we should be demonstrating grace and love and kindness and mercy, you know, the, the fruits of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And if you're not exhibiting those, then I'm doubting your motivation. Right. Um, so um, when I can look at somebody, like, I'll, do, I'll call names here as far as, like, you know, Dr. Heiser, Leighton Flowers is another one. When you see people who respond to criticisms of their work with graciousness, kindness, and civility, mm-hmm. um, that just raises their, their value as teachers in my estimation. So, um, again, not affiliated with either of them in any way. Just uh, really value what they do as far as their, their work. So, um, anyhow. Moving on, uh, we're back in Psalms 89. I don't want to leave this. So in the Psalm, um, God speaks to his enemies. He speaks in uh, a very spiritual sense as far as overcoming Rahab and the sea and this idea of chaos and turmoil that God confronts and he deals with. Uh, God's victorious over these things because 
he created these creatures. He created creation. And so if you are the creator, you have the right and the obligation to rule and to rule well and completely. Uh, blessed are the people who walk in the light of his face. And so now we have this light imagery coming back. Uh, God is a shield. He's the rock. The, these are terminology that we heard not only in uh, 2 Samuel 23, we also see it in 2 Samuel 22. And so we have shared language with David's Psalms 22, 2 Samuel 22, which is right there with 23. They're very connected, both in proximity and theme. And so when you have shared language with David's Psalm, because it had shared language with Hannah's song, the three kind of work together. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go into the details of all that because, you know, we kind of covered a lot of that before. So you can kind of plug in what we talked about with David and Hannah's songs with this um, psalm here. Um, but, we, you know, it is good to remember that Hannah is the one who announced the first person. I will never get tired of saying this. The first person who announced that the Messiah was coming, that God was going to exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, was a woman. This is the first time we find that term. So I love that. And um, anyway, but then there's this in-depth description, and this is of uh, the Davidic covenant, and this is what Brueggemann was talking about. But then at the end of the psalm, it ends with this lament with the question of why God has turned from his anointed, why he's um, allowed the enemy to mock the footsteps of the Messiah or the anointed. And so if Ethan the Ezraite is, um, is the one who wrote this, which remember we talked about how those uh, superscriptions on the Psalms can be a little, they're traditional. They weren't necessarily um, included in the original text, but they, they have been added to at some point. We just aren't sure. Um, but this could refer to either a lament that happened during the trouble of David's reign, like the rebellion of Absalom, uh, the rebellion of uh, Shiva. It could be referring to David's impending death uh, because, I mean, Good grief when you've got God's anointed as the king and now he's dying. This is something that, that devastates um, kingdoms. When, when the, a king who is this powerful and this successful is gone, what's going to happen to the kingdom? Mm -hmm. uh, you want to see how crazy it is? Go look at the history of Rome and, and the succession and the problems with succession in the Caesars and how that just caused all kinds of turmoil. Um, so uh, one of the well, reasons I mean, why you see this, I forget which chapter of Matthew it is, but when they're talking about the birth of Christ, it's there's news that the Messiah is born, and in, and in there it says that Jerusalem was was who is who was the Herod was greatly troubled, and Jerusalem Nothing. along with him, and mm -hmm. it's like, well, why would Jerusalem be troubled by this? Because exactly what you're talking about, transfer of power is not ever an easy process it, it, when it comes it's, to governments. It's messy. And when we're talking about particularly spiritual transfer of power, you know, we, we human transfer of power from one person to another, that that's crazy enough. But now we're taking and we're multiplying the impact exponentially. And so, um, you know, the, this idea that there's going to be something that's going to happen. I mean, David's own house is in such crazy disarray. Amnon's raped his sister. Absalom's killed Amnon. Joab, David's cousin, has killed um, Absalom. And who's going to be the next king? Who, who could possibly be the next king? Because Absalom was the heir apparent after Amnon. Mm -hmm. And so now what do we do? 
and so this is one of the reasons why David's words are so comforting and why they're so needed is because God is the one sustaining the kingdom, not David. Mm -hmm. And David's just, again, that participant. And so um, one of the reasons why I think this might be referring to his death is because in verse 48 of Psalm 89, it says, when what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from Sheol? So we have this, this very uh, direct reference to death. That's speculation on my part. I want to be upfront up about that. Uh, but that does that, that's kind of what points me in um, that direction. So um, there is another possibility that the psalm was actually composed after the Babylonian exile, or even just the last stanza was added to the psalm in the in the Babylonian exile. So it could refer to that. I don't know. I I, I tend to to think that the whole thing was one. Uh, I'm you know further study. I might change my mind, but. Bergman sees the same language here, and I, and I think that it's shared with 2 Samuel 22 is also obvious. Then he points to the flood accounts, where God makes an everlasting covenant with Noah. And he picks the same words, you know, the everlasting covenant, again, in Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. And it, this is a reaffirmation of the covenant with Noah, which is really interesting to me. And we're probably going to get more into this when we get into Kings, that Isaiah would need to reaffirm a covenant made with Noah to the people in exile. So uh, this is, and uh, I, I don't want to speculate too much because I haven't taken time to, to uh, study Isaiah as completely as I want to, but when you got to think that when Israel, who has seen itself as the promised nation, the nation that, that God has set aside both, um, in terms of the population and the people live there, but also the land itself as being part of the covenantal promise and being part of the promise to Abraham and all of Israel so that they would have the means to participate in the coming of the Messiah. Uh, now that they've been removed from it, you know, th there's this idea of destruction that's so total. So the idea that God would preserve the land, the earth, that it's not going to be destroyed, it, would have significance to this people. And because part of the kingship, the idea of kingship is protecting the land. Mm. It's protecting the geography. And I, I think we kind of miss that sometimes um, that this, you know, the, the land plays a significant part in the old Testament or the Tanakh. I'm working on this guys. I really am. Cause I really hate the old and new distinction, but the, um, the, uh, where was I going with this? But you've got to have the geography uh, and you've got to have the space and the means. And it really is about pointing back to the idea of Eden being a sacred space, that place where God joined with his people, reclaimed in some ways through the presence of God in the temple, but then also pointing towards the fact that it's not going to end with Israel, mm -hmm. that all of the earth is going to be reclaimed. And so if God can't save Israel, if God can't protect this little nation, and I'm not saying that he's, he didn't do it, I'm saying in the minds of the exiles, then how in the world is God ever going to reclaim all of the earth? How is he going to make sure that the entire earth is a place where he can inhabit and be with creation? So the, the promise of Noah is actually very timely, I think, for the exilic uh, Israelites so that they would understand God hasn't forgotten. 
the, the promise is still at play. And so um, God's not going to abandon it either to the chaos of the waters or to the dominion of other gods. And very, so, very curious about how that ties in with uh, Acts 15. Right? Right? Well, I'm sure we'll get there eventually. <laughs> so people just need to keep listening. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in, in Isaiah, you've got the reaffirmation of the Noahic covenant. And then the, how it ties in with the Davidic covenant uh, is found in 55.3. And you got to remember that in the, original, um, in the original version of your Bible, you don't have chapter and, and verse division. Mm. So the original reader wouldn't go, oh, I'm at the end of the chapter. I'm going to put it up now, and I'll come back for my daily dose tomorrow. Uh, they would have read the whole thing in continuity. So they would have seen immediately that the Noahic covenant is tied to the Davidic covenant. They work together. And um, I, but I think Brueggemann stopped short. Now I'm very hesitant to, to, to critique Brueggemann because he is, I, I highly respect his work. Um, but I think it goes back to reading Belial as a idiom rather than a, um, a proper name. So, um, One of the things that I noted when I was reading through this in the Hebrew, um, the word thorns in verse, see what the verse is here, um, in verse six, it, it's singular. It, it's not plural. And so the one who's opposing God is a thorn, not, not multiples. It, it, it's a one thing, just like Belial is one thing. Mm. And so anytime we have the word thorn, though, in the Bible, I'm immediately thinking back to Genesis 3, which is the covenant God. Well, we'll get into this in a minute, um, but it's the fall. Yeah, no, it, I, I, I get that. And it, it's funny to me because I know most people, whenever they think of thorns, are going to think of the crucifixion. So right? just an observation. I mean, I'm not there. I'm sure there's something there uh, on both counts. And maybe they thorns should are, all be tied together somehow. Right? Well, thorns is highly symbolic. And now I will admit that I think of not only the fall, uh, I also think of the binding of Isaac because of the ram caught in the thorn bush. Uh, then I also think of Exodus 3, which is where Moses sees the burning thorn bush. Uh, however, if I just relied on what my brain told me, I would be wrong. Okay. Because, and I, I want to point this out because I think a lot of us do this. We have certain images and certain ideas that we think we've been taught or we read in the Bible somewhere because of either artistic representations or um, you know, sloppy teaching on the Bible. And so we insert things into the Bible when we don't actually read the Bible. And we need to to recognize our memories are really messed up. Mm -hmm. um, our, our memories are not accurate at all. And so this is one reason why you have to read, read, and reread what, what's in the Bible. And so the word in 2 Samuel and the word in Genesis 3 are the same. They're quotes. Uh, is what, and so we have this word for thorn, but the word for thorn, this particular word for thorn does not appear in either Genesis 22 or in Exodus three. There's the implication, uh, that there might be thorny type bushes, but it's not the same word. Mm. 
So this is the reason why English word studies, why when you pick up a Strong's and you go, oh, I'm going to see where this word appears in the rest of the Bible, it can lead you astray. Mm-hmm. You, and I'm not knocking the Strong's. I've used the Strong's a lot, especially my early days. I don't use it so much now, but, you know, you you, you can use it. Yeah. But here's well, the, and, and to clarify— to clarify, lead astray, not like lead you out of the faith, but maybe lead you <laughs> on to some funky practices or interpretations. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. I mean, that, that I, I feel like that might be a better way to express that. <laughs> or anyone okay. thinking that using the Strongs is not going to destroy your faith. Yeah, you're not going to end up accidentally worshiping the devil. Um, <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to say. I always find it, um, I always find it funny how people think you can... <laughs> accidentally worship the devil really easily but you no one thinks someone could accidentally worship god um well more on that later put that out there in the ether and let it do what it will in people's brains okay yeah but if you if you do use the strongs let me let me give you this whole tip they'll have uh the word and then it'll have the references and then it'll have several a series of dots and then there's a number if you're looking for the same word in Hebrew being used multiple times, the numbers need to match. So if you can make sure the numbers match in accordance with the reference, then you can make sure you're actually doing an apples to apples comparison. So um, that way that should help some people out. And, um, you know, honestly, just start using, you know, some interlinear sources and, (laughs) <laughs> and see, this is where I kind of have the opposite complaint that I do about algebra. It's like, why are we bringing no- letters into into math? Why are we bringing numbers into Bible? No, like, <laughs> because nobody knows how to find anything in a Hebrew lexicon. I mean, it took like a whole semester to drill that into our heads. Um, uh, so yeah, so people use the numbers because they don't learn the Hebrew alphabet and they don't learn which letters drop off and which letters disappear and which letters are absorbed into other vowel pointing mm. whatever so that's the reason why um but yeah i don't i don't want to get too geeky on people and i i still honestly sometimes if i'm like looking for something in the hebrew lexicon um and i'm stumped i will get like an interlinear i'll just get a bible hub i'll pull up the strong's number and then i'll cross-reference it yeah. with my bdb and bible hub is a um, fantastic resource it's free. It's out there. I mean, if you if you don't have anything else to use, it's there. And so, um, you know, I haven't invested in a lot of software. At, maybe at some point we can that will correct that because you know I need Logos. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to bring See that Patreon. up. Because, um. <laughs> well, but I but I wanted to point out, you know, that number one, we can remember things wrong. Number two. Um, we can actually use the wrong words if we don't understand that sometimes the English translators will use the same word for a different Hebrew word. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, now what's interesting about this particular word coat is it only appears in the Bible 12 times. I think our mother's physical therapist is here. <laughs> so <laughs> They activated the dogs. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but our sister should be on that. So we should be good. But it only appears 12 times. And with only one exception, it's always used in the context of judgment or the release from judgment. So it it always has this idea of God's judgment. 
The, the exception is in Exodus 22, 6, and basically it says if you're burning thorns and it gets away from you and destroys your neighbor's crops, whether it's in the field or being stored, you need to repay them. So, you know, okay, makes sense. You know, if you're going to build a fire, watch it. Be very careful. And, you know, so I don't think the psalm is supposed to connect us just to this flood. I think it's supposed to connect us back to Genesis 3, that there's a reason David chose this particular ver- this word in the psalm. And you can remember, David's not talking here. David is literally taking dictation from God on this. I'm not going to say that very often about a Bible passage, that you know God is dictating the words. Um, I think he inspires people. I think he did a great job of getting out there what he wanted out there in his word. But David sets this apart as an oracle. We talked about that a lot last week. But this is part of um, the fall. And a lot of times you'll hear this referred to as the curse of Adam and Eve. Okay, get that language out of your head. Can we just stop? Okay, this, this is a pet peeve of mine. It makes me crazy. Adam and Eve were not cursed in Genesis 3. I totally went to miss that. Okay. It doesn't happen. There's no curse of Eve. Right. And, you know, and typically when you hear this, it's the curse of Eve. I looked up the curse of Adam and I looked up the curse of Eve. Like I can hardly find anything on the curse of Adam. I found so much on the curse of Eve. The word curse in Genesis 3 is only applied to the serpent, the, the evil one, the, the embodiment of intelligent evil who deceived Eve. That's who gets cursed. And the ground is cursed on account of Adam. And it brings forth thorns and thistles. So are you guys starting to see themes here? How things start to work together with the, the geography, the thorns, the appearance of an evil one. All of this fits. It's that continuation of that narrative. Um, so, uh, I and because I bring up the curse, I have to point this out too. Here's the really cool part, and this is how we get things so backwards because of what we remember wrong. Eve is actually blessed, I, and people don't realize this. They think Eve is cursed. No, she's blessed. She is given a promised in Genesis 3. What's the promise? You get to participate in the redemption of the world. You get to participate in stopping the evil that has entered into creation now. How are you going to do that? Because your son and the son of the serpent, they're going to have enmity and your son's going to crush his head and he's just going to bruise your son's heel. This is, this is the promise that's given, not to Adam, by the way. Adam doesn't get that. Eve does. And so once again, we see where when God's dealing with women and God's talking to women and saying, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take care of you. I got you on this. We, we often overlook it and downplay that message in scripture. And so we need to just quit. We really do. We need to quit talking about the curse of Eve. And we need to start celebrating the fact that God actually gave her a promise. And so, you know, that's the Aside from, you know, don't eat the tree and you won't die, which, you know, Adam and Eve did mess up. That's like the very next promise God gives to humanity. And it's to a woman. So um, I know I, I'm like, people's heads are 
blowing up all over the place. That wasn't what I was taught in Sunday school. You can hear the keyboard. You can hear the keyboard <laughs> firing up as we speak. Yeah, just just go back and read it. Like stop and actually read word for word and circle, you know, highlight the word curse. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, you'll you'll see I'm right. Um but Every Christian commentary agrees that this this promise to Eve is the promise of the Messiah. This is the first time we have it. And so she gets to participate in recreating that sacred space and, and being able to, to provide a place to, to replace that, that position in the world where humanity could actually draw near to God, where they could actually commune with God that was lost in Eden. Now it's going to be replaced in the nation of Israel. And again, that's going to foreshadow what's going to happen in the reign of Christ, where everyone can once again draw to uh, draw near to God's presence. So um, we also have another connection to Genesis 3, which I've already kind of mentioned. It's the presence of intelligent evil, embodied evil. And so the Nakash, the serpent, um, this this spiritual being that may have taken the the shape of a of a serpent. There's so many theories out there. I I, I honestly, it's one of those things. that's like I really don't care at this point. Um, <laughs> I know it seems weird that I say things like that about the Bible, but there there are certain things. It's like there's a little amb- ambiguity left there. God could have spelled it out for us clearly. This is definitely something. That was inspired by evil to to do this, mm-hmm. whether it was the, an evil entity itself or um, operating through a snake, whatever, whether it wasn't even a snake. Maybe it was uh, some kind of angelic being. We don't know. There's some confusion in the language. Uh, answers to giant questions. Ask Tim and Chris about this. So <laughs> let's see how I pass the buck here. But um if we read Belial as a proper name, now we have David specifically identifying that the overthrow of intelligent evil is what's going to destroy the thorn. And if you destroy the thorn, what happens to the earth begin, becomes usable again? It becomes uh, something that can be abundant again. Mm-hmm. And so the curse on the land is actually reversed. How exciting is that? I mean, that. That's huge. And so then if we put in um, Psalm 89 into the equation, which Brueggemann made that great connection, now we have God's authority of over creation being specifically spelled out and how he is going to overcome his enemies. And, and I mean, it just all fits. It flows. And so you've got this beautiful continuity from Genesis to, to Samuel and David. And then it we're going to see, we're going to wind up in X and revelation. Mm-hmm. How great is that? <laughs> so, uh, but the, the promises of the victories of the Messiah actually changes the state of the earth mm-hmm. in, in Genesis three here in second um, Samuel 22, 23, and then in, in Psalms 89. And, and I love the symmetry. And I, I love that the one who is instrumental in the advent of the thorns gets burned like a thorn. That it's just, you know, these are the things that make me happy uh, because I'm a big nerd. So the next significant uh, image, sorry, image in this psalm is iron in the shaft of the spear. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I want to begin with the shaft of the spear because throughout Samuel, the spear has always been a symbol of authority, power, might. Um, you know, now here we aren't talking about a spear, we're talking about the shaft. It's, it's actually the word for wood, um, specifically. And, um, you know, we can talk about uh, Goliath's spear being unusually large. It was like a, the uh, weaver's beam. Weaver's beam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saul always had a spear at his side, whether he's throwing it at David because he's in a bad mood or he's consulting with his servants. It's noted as being there uh, while he's sleeping. We're told that it's in the ground by his head. Um, so definitely within the context of Samuel, this is authority. This is the right to rule. That's what's being presented here. Now, iron leaps out at me because it's part of another Davidic psalm, which is also a messianic psalm. Uh, some of y'all have already guessed, it's, Sam, uh, it's Psalms 2, and verses 8 and 9, this is how it reads, it says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So, um, in other places in the Psalms, the rod is a uh, source of comfort, security, I mean, we talked about, you know, Psalm 23, um, but now the the goal here with this this rod this this um is to actually consume the worthless or belial with fire and so another reason why i think that um we need to look at belial being a proper name but the the idea that the messiah is armed with iron mm-hmm. and so in psalm Two definitely the this this iron is part of how he overthrows um the evil ones in this in second samuel twenty three iron is what he's going to use why because you can't pick the enemy with human hands. this enemy is too dangerous to even touch and so if you talk about fire and you talk about uh the fate of Satan, I think we all know revelation twenty ten Satan's going to be cast into a lake of fire. Uh, so I, I see symmetry there. Um, and so, again, I, I see it all working together to provide a complete picture. And it, it's really affecting that full reversal of the fall and establishing God's kingdom on earth once and for all. And David, once again, is just that, um, is that stepping stone. You know, it's the beginning. And the you know, the purpose of David becoming the king of Israel is to establish a nation that would give rise to the Messiah. It's not so that David could be king. It's because there needs to be a method and means to get the Messiah here. And that's what this book has been about from from the outset. Uh, It was never about Samuel. It was never about Saul. It was never about David. It's about the Messiah who would fulfill the prophecy given by Hannah. Hannah tells you from the beginning, this is the purpose of the story. It's not to tell you that these guys are so great. It's to tell you that God is greater. And everything we've read in this book has been the story of the Messiah and how God's going to enact his plan, why Jesus, uh, the Christos, the, the Messiah, is necessary, and how God protects and um, secures those he, love and, uh, he loves and those who honor him. Because when we love and honor God, we're, we're declaring his reign in our life. We're saying he is the king over our lives. And we're creating this microcosm that isn't as great as the nation of Israel in the day of David. But 
again, we're participating in something that will become greater because it's not about us. It's about the Messiah who's coming. Mm -hmm. And so David's perspective and David's understanding should help inform us on how we look at this and that it is really about this battle between good and evil. Whether we call him the Nakash, we call him a serpent, we call him Belial, we call him Satan, it, it, all of this flows together and there is no separate story of humanity and God's interaction. It's all one. We might have chapters, but the story is cohesive from in the beginning to the very end. And until we get that our minds wrapped around this idea, then it's going to be really hard to find stability and security within scripture mm. because we're pulling things out of context and we're, we're making them apply to fit this uh, situation and, and we're taking the part that we like, or we're disregarding the part that we don't like, whether we're actively rejecting it or just ignoring it. But when you read everything in sequence, then you get this, this, this imagery that is just phenomenal. And you begin to get excited about what it means when Christ is going to return, it, it's it's everything that David was and more. Mm-hmm. And so I I think too often we we present this as too simple, too shallow. Um, we don't like the idea of the supernatural, and that's that's the other thing too. I don't have it in my notes, but I think it's important that we know that when we talk about evil, we real evil. And I'm not talking about just, you know, bad things. I'm talking about evil. Um, a spiritual reality that is created by, by beings that want the destruction of humanity, who want to injure God. And when we talk about these things, we begin to recognize the need for a savior. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I think that, I mean, there's the quote that, you know, one of the greatest, um, Things that Satan ever did was to convince the world that he's dead or not real. Convince however, the world I mean, he doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, when we take that that evil element out of the Bible, when we we stop looking at those supernatural things, we really are removing that need for a savior. We're, we're or at very least we're downplaying it. We're we're making it more about our own personal fire insurance than about impacting change and, and actually impacting the state of the earth. I mean, Paul talks about, you know, the, the earth cries out for his redemption. He's not being poetic there. In Hebrew theology, sin damages the earth. Mm-hmm. It damages the person. It damages the people around us. It damages our environment. I, I, and we know this. I mean, how many you know, environmental causes do we have out there? And it's just crazy to me. Christians are going like, oh no, we can't talk about the environment. You know, our first command was to take care of the world we live in. And I think we need to do that responsibly. We need to do that with wisdom. And, but the reason why we have this issue with environmental issues is because sin damages the earth. And we can see that in a direct way where, you know, maybe chemicals or something being tossed in the, in the river has killed, you know, ecosystems. And so that's a very direct way. But the Bible says even things that you don't see as being a direct impact on the earth actually are. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you might have to look with spiritual eyes to see it, but it's there. And so this, this 
psalm as the center of our chiasm, as kind of the jewel in our in the setting of the rest of the chapters, it tells us that the purpose of the kingship it is about redeeming the earth. It's about bringing abundance and prosperity. It's about overthrowing that evil that damage has damaged humanity and the world. And you know that's that's amazing that this is integral to the fabric of the Old Testament and the Tanakh. Um, and so that we actually begin to see a view of God that isn't this horrible tyrant king of the Old Testament who just hates everybody and can barely keep himself from wiping us all out, but has actually invested in the well-being of humanity and cares about us enough to defend us from evil. Mm-hmm. So um, just got a few minutes, so uh, let's take a, a couple of seconds to uh, talk about um, what we're getting ready to go into. So uh, I almost feel like it's like anticlimactic. <laughs> we're going to talk about all these these uh, housekeeping issues about going into kings after this really great um, psalm that just you know is way more exciting than than. I, I do want to throw something out there. Okay. Um, just as a, a point to ponder, if anyone has anything on this, please send it my way. Because as we were going through the the discussion of David, and you were talking about the psalm about his life, and you know we were talking about this was after his sin with Bathsheba and things like that, mm-hmm. and then he talks about not you know not being taken by wickedness or evil and things like that. I, I really am wondering, and it seems like there's like this implication that, and I I can't quite put my foot on it, it, and that I think we miss oftentimes in the church. Is there, or am I just? reading things wrong, is there a difference between sin and wickedness? Mm. Mm. Yeah. I would say, okay, so basically taking from the um, what we've read and not taking time to look at dictionary, like I just admonished people to do, uh, but the... The idea, you know, I think there's a difference between sin and entrenched sin is what I call it. Not just habitual sin, but like entrenched, where it becomes part of your identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's the thing with David's sins. They're one-offs. They're out of character. Where Saul, it's like every time he made a mistake, it's like, of course this is what he did. We wouldn't expect less from him. I mean, he's been presented from the beginning of his story is kind of like this big derpy dog that doesn't know what to do with himself. He hides in the luggage. Mm -hmm. um, because, And and then it's like he just blunders into one mistake after another because he thinks he knows how to work the system Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or how to game the system. And so his character is such that he never learns how to rely on God. He never learns how to submit to God. He's always trying to manipulate or or outsmart God in some way is what it feels like to me, where David is like, every time he operates in his own wisdom, he always comes back and goes, I messed up. Mm-hmm. I, I, I blew it. This was, this is not who I am. This is not who God wants me to be. I want to be close to God. So I have to get the sin out of my life. Not because God can't use David, you know, when it, as a sinful man. I, I, I think there's, and this is where you really have to be careful with your language, because there's this idea that 
oh, well, we don't have to keep any of the commandments. We don't have to do anything the Bible tells us because it's all by grace through faith. Okay. Absolutely. 100%. Our salvation is a complete and total gift. But if I'm going to honor God, if I'm going to love him, and I'm going to, to do things to enhance that relationship, then I need to do things that he likes and things that he says he enjoys. And David recognizes not only does he need to honor God that way, he also recognizes the holiness of God. I mean, I think we forget that holiness doesn't allow sin in its presence. Holiness does not make room for sin. And so when God says, hey, I'm, I'm going to reach out to you and I'm going to love you enough to, to invite you in, he isn't doing it because he's holy. That's the loving side of him. The holy side of him would demand justice. And so David, David doesn't want anything in between. And I feel like I'm babbling here because this is a big concept. David doesn't want anything blocking him from the holy God that he has seen on that throne. Mm-hmm. The one that he has envisioned in the temple. Think about that for a minute. When if, if you see God on his throne in his heavenly temple, you have an understanding of holiness like few of us would ever have. And David says, I want to be near that. Saul never understood that about God. And here's the thing. Saul had the opportunity to. How many mm-hmm. times did Saul prophesy? How many times did the Spirit of the Lord come over Saul and just completely says it gave him a new heart? God gave him a new mm-hmm. heart, made him. And Saul still said, don't care, my way's better. And so David never does that. And so I think what, going back to your question. <laughs> I know. I always take the long way because the long way is better. Okay. Well, it gives you time See, to think. It does give me time to think. <laughs> um, not going to lie. Uh, so, the, but the thing is, David never wants to lose that, and he he never allows his sin to become entrenched. The minute he sees that that breach in the relationship, where he is separating himself from God's holiness and God's holy presence, which, by the way. David, the priest who goes into the temple and sits before the Ark of the Covenant, has a conversation with God. He wanted to be near that kind of holiness. And so he pursues it. What does Saul do? Saul says, hey, I need to talk to God. Bring the Ark over here. Mm -hmm. Totally disrespectful. Not what he's supposed to do. Saul never, he, he never understood that the holiness was just as significant about God as David did. So I think, yes, there is a difference between wickedness in the sense that wickedness is something that defines your identity. Sin can be a one-off. Now, if you sin long enough, then it does become part of your identity. Because, I mean, we talk about thieves, talk about murderers. We don't talk about them as a person anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We identify them by their sin. And so when the sin becomes your identity, now we've crossed a whole new thing. And I'm not saying like society sees you that way. I'm saying when you see yourself this way, when you begin to accept this, because I mean, society will accuse you of crazy crap. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, they will do everything they can to try to force you to become what they want you to become. So when you say this is what defines me, then, then you've got an issue. Yeah. And David, 
David said, no, this is who God's called me to be. So this is why this particular sin can't be a part of my identity. So I'm going to separate from it. So that, so yeah, I think that, I think, think there is a difference. Okay. I was curious about that. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) So I went all over the place. That's fine. So, um, so you were about to go into what we're doing next time. We are, are we done with Samuel at this point? We are done with That's Samuel. It. Can you imagine? Hmm. I, I, crazy, right? It's all about the kingship. It doesn't really feel and, like and it's we all be of... done with it, but I guess we are. <laughs> all my notes, like when I was starting to write my stuff for Kings, I kept writing Samuel because we've been in it for so long. Well, I had to like go back and erase. Well, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just took us, you know, two, two something, almost two years. Um, uh, over two years. Like, over two years. Yeah, we started oh, in like wow. February of 2020. I can't do math. So we're we're a little <laughs> past the two year mark on this. I I don't even know how I'm going to respond because we because with a new book become comes new resources and I've kind of gotten used to talking to talking to quote unquote Bergman and Zamora and Bergen <laughs> and so now as we move into this new uh, series on First and Second Kings. I'm going to have to learn the way new scholars think and talk about this. Right. And, uh, you know, which is exciting and fun, but, you know, I'll kind of miss my, my old buddies there. I get that. It's <laughs> so, like, it's like you can get to the end of a book that you've been reading for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I, I understand. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so um, uh, as we're going through uh, this, it's going to be a little bit of a different journey because even though it's still part of the same book, um, it's a part of the same book because an editor took, the editor who worked on Samuel took a lot of stories from different resources and put them all together. Mm. And so we have, um, we have liftings from the, the prophets where either the prophets took from first and second Kings or the uh, second, first, second Kings took from the writings of the prophet, mm-hmm. um, almost direct quotations in different places. We have stuff from the acts of the, uh, the acts of Psalm uh, Solomon that has been part of this. We have uh, parts of the Testament of the acts of Judah. Uh, that's going to be a part of this. We're going to have other outside sources, which were drawn on from in other places. So we know there's like a central pool that people are drawing from mm-hmm. uh, that may not be identified. And so there's going to, there's different flavors to each of the stories. So we aren't going to have that kind of stability that we had with Samuel where we could go, okay, when the writer uses this phrase, he means this mm-hmm. because he's always used it this way in the past. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're going to have some really crazy issues with dating because some of the parts are really old and could also could date right back to the time of Solomon. But we also know that some of it doesn't get written until after the exile. And, um, you know, and we're going to talk about those indicators so that when you're reading the Bible, when you're coming across these phrases in the passages, you can go, Oh, okay. I know that this means this is before the divided kingdom. Mm-hmm. I know that this is after the divided kingdom. And, uh, you know, because we do have those tip-offs in, in the text, and this is part of how scholars, you know, work through dating stuff. Um, our our primary text is going to be the ESV. We're going to stick with it. Um, I'm hoping by the time we get through First Kings, I can actually um, 
have worn this Bible out enough to replace it uh, <laughs> by Second Kings. Uh, unfortunately, when I study, I'm hard on books, in case y'all hadn't gathered. Um, so the English Standard Version, we're sticking with it, not because it's my favorite, but because it's probably one that a lot of people already have access mm -hmm. to. Um, we will be drawing from Robert Alter, and we're going to talk about problems with using Alter and um, some good things about using Alter um, in the next episode. But look, our Art Scroll commentary is going to be back. Um, the New American commentary is going to be a part of this. And then I've got an interesting one that's really new to me um, that we'll go into her, uh, by uh, Dr. Laffey. And she wrote a commentary on First and Second Kings and she's a feminist theologian. And if you know me, I kind of cringe at that word because it has a lot of baggage and trying to define it can be a little difficult. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of women in First and Second Kings, a lot. And um, sometimes just I wanted to see what she brought to the table that maybe the boys didn't bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I don't know if I'm going to like her yet. I really haven't got into it yet. And I'm really excited to see if she's given me uh, something that I can really work with or not. Um, so I, I think we've got the opportunity to have some really good stuff. Uh, next week, I'll do a, a, um, a broader introduction and we'll talk a little bit more about the background of the, um, uh, you know, the, the, where they're teaching, what they may have written that might interest people and uh, why we chose them. So um, unfortunately, we aren't going to have the new international commentary because they haven't written one on first and second Kings yet. And I'm highly disappointed. And I'm going on record with that because, um, <laughs> you know, that, that was a big source for Samuel, mm -hmm. but what, what I found, uh, and I think this is really interesting is first and second Kings doesn't have a lot of commentary written on it. Uh, the, the books, even the commentaries I've got, um, you know, first, second Kings is about the same length as first and second Camel as Samuel. That Samuel, okay, Samuel. But the commentaries are like really thin for both books. Whereas Samuel, you had two big volumes, mm -hmm. and so this tells you how little commentators feel it matters. And um, I think that maybe by the time we get through, we we might be able to to. Um, reverse that idea for a lot of people so well i'm looking forward to it because i mean we've been with david for so long and his life is very interesting i mean there's a lot of a lot of ups <laughs> and downs but we're about to get into some really weird stories uh, mm -hmm. that's one of the things i really like about first and second kings <laughs> as there's there's some very interesting uh comments in the narrative, there's a lot of uh, things you can pull out in commentary that speaks to how the in, uh, the unseen realm, as Heiser likes to call it, operates, mm -hmm. how the spiritual world, mm -hmm. uh, not uh, how it's arranged, how it interacts, how God interacts mm -hmm. with us, and how mm -hmm. God interacts with some of the characters in the supernatural realm. So I'm very, I'm very excited to see what happens. <laughs> Who doesn't want to study Elijah and Elisha? Who doesn't want to study Ahab and Jezebel? I mean, these, every time I taught at the college classes, these are the people that my students were uh, excited to learn about. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I'm I'm excited to get into their stories and in a in a way that I didn't have an opportunity to go into when I was teaching college classes because I really didn't have the time to break it down. Where evidently y'all will let me spend over two years in first and second Samuel. And so we'll see how long we can draw on first and second kings. No, I'm I, I think it's gonna be good. But I think we should go ahead and break there because we're getting a little long on yep. time. Um everyone out there, if you've enjoyed the show enjoyed hanging out, being part of the conversation, let us know. Uh, Hit us up on the website, ravencreeksc.com or ravencreeksc on all the social media. Um, If you want to help spread what we're doing, be sure to like, share, subscribe, all those little things. And if you want even more content, head over to patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. And you can uh, pass us a couple bucks and get a bonus episode and possibly some merchandise if you're interested in a wearing a shirt around or taking a coffee mug uh, to the office to show your support for what we do. Uh, That being said, uh, hit us up next time and we will see you then. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.